Salute. Slancha. Cheers. Get ready to raise a toast with Seattle's most spirited hour of talk, Happy Hour Radio, right now on Talk Radio 570 KVI. Explore the best in Washington wines, beer, spirits, food, and events with your guide, master of mixology, and Seattle sommelier, Christopher Chan. So sit back and get ready to stir it up. It's Happy Hour Radio, right now on 570 KBI. And welcome to Happy Hour. Yes, I am your host, your weekend wine guy, your cocktail commander, advanced sommelier, Christopher Chan. So pleased that you're joining us today. And every Saturday, 11 a.m. to noon, for Seattle's most spirited hour of talk. Featuring the best in wine, spirits, cocktails, fresh beers, great food events, and education all around the Puget Sound. Right here on Happy Hour Radio, 570 KVI. Hey, I hope you'll invite your friends, coworkers, and party peeps, and tune in and even play along at home. If you'd like, that's right. If you're seeking the answers to life's most difficult questions in wine, spirits, cocktails, and more, send us an email to ask at happyhourradio.net. We'll answer your questions on air, and I'll send you a personal reply. And for some dreadful reason that you've been pulled away from the radio, or for those streaming live on the desktop, don't despair, because you can access our audio library of previous broadcasts online, happyhourradio.net. 24-7 access at happyhourradio.net. Hey, I'd like to give a shout-out to our friends in Walla Walla and everyone who's making world-class Syrah. This year, 2014, marks the 30th anniversary of Walla Walla Valley Wine Region. Hey, and I'm thrilled to attend and invite you to celebrate the world of Syrah this summer in Walla Walla. That's right. Plan your long travel weekend for June 19th to 21st. The Walla Walla Wine Alliance and many of the top Syrah-producing wineries are all throwing down a worldwide Syrah celebration. With wine dinners, wine tastings, seminars, and more, starting off with the Vintage Pour. 30 wineries pouring library selections of Syrah from 2007 and before. You know, that's going to be crazy. Hey, tickets and information are available at wallawallawine.com. Hey, and as always, we strive to bring you the best in the world of beverages, and today's happy hour is rockin'. We're excited to have Mr. Greg Fries, President, Co-Owner, and Director of Winemaking for Desert Wind Winery here today, and my good friend, mentor, and one of two masters of wine here in Washington, Mr. Joel Butler. We'll be chatting about his recent book, Divine Vintage, and get a glimpse inside the Masters of Wine exam. But hey, all this talking is making me thirsty, and I'm ready for a sip of something special. It's my sincere pleasure to introduce one of my longtime colleagues, um, a guy who's been who's bearing bottles of Brook Lottie. One of the coolest whiskeys in all of Scotland. He's the regional state manager for Remy Amarique and, and an ambassador of Isla today. Mr. Brent Young, welcome to Happy Hour. Thank you, Christopher. Glad to be here. Hey, so let's set the glassware up for our listeners. We're speaking of Scotch, meaning we're in Scotland. We're on the island of Isla. And to recap, Scotch is a distilled uh, spirit from dried from malted barley uh, that's been dried, heated, toasted from peated malt smoke, uh, distilled twice. And then brought to barrel proof in the cask, right? Correct. And to be a Scotch, you have to be made in Scotland, barrel aged for a minimum of three years and twice distilled. But the great thing about uh, the Scotches is we're going to see some different styles. We're going to see no, normally when you go to the island of Isla, which is where Brucolati is located, then you're going to start seeing a little bit of a different style. Most people associate Isla with a real smoky, phenolic, peaty scotch. And while we have those, we also have some a uh, some little bit of a lighter style to try today as well. Yeah, and Brook Lottie was an independent uh, distillery for a long time, and they were just recently acquired by the Remy Amarique Group, correct? Yeah, they actually started distilling in 1881. They were purchased in 1994 by a large uh, spirit company, and then sh- actually closed down shortly after. And then a couple of enthusiasts reopened it in 2001. So they started distilling in 2001, and then the Remy Cointreau Company bought it in uh, 2012. And now we're just now starting to see these come to market. Yeah, I'm familiar with Brook Lottie, and I love their spirits. They've got great packaging and obviously a great tasting profile. Hey, if you're uh, playing along at home, you want to check out brooklottie.com. That's B-R-U-I-C-H-L-A-D-D-I-C-H. Brook Lottie. That's how they pronounce it? Brook Lottie? Brook Lottie. Brook Lottie. Excellent. Uh, so you brought two expressions of Brook Lottie, but first um, you gave us some history. Is there one distiller there, or do they have a group of people crafting this spirit? 
Well, there's quite a few uh, well-known distilleries on the island, but most of them have one thing in common, and that is typic- that typical Isla style of that rather phenolic, heavy, camphored, uh, peated whiskey. And also, Brucati's coming to the table with uh, some new ideas. Uh, some of our whiskeys are not peated, which means that the malted barley is not dried over peat, so it does not have that smoky smell. And also, we are going away from age statements on our whiskey, which is somewhat unheard of. And we're, uh, we're trying to get the cross that the terroir matters. And that's what Brucati is all about, is the terroir, not the age. Uh, it's really about the place, the sense of place that it comes from. And how many expressions does Brucati produce now? Currently, we produce uh, five. So it, we, when we took over the, the distillery, we got rid of quite a few different uh, products, and we really kind of distilled it down, lack of a better term, to five key products <laughs> that really we think give a great sense of place. And anywhere from the approachable side, um, side to a very, very intense, and actually we have one of the most or the most heavily peated uh, Scotch whiskey. Yeah, I'm looking at the the profile sheets here, and that is Mm -hmm. called Octomore. Octomore 6.1. Octomore 6.1. Yes, which is uh, very unique in that it actually, all the barley comes from the Octomore farm. And so that is one that... uh, it's not, it's not a wee dram of whiskey, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> That's a farm, not a James Bond flick, huh? Exactly. <laughs> okay, so you've got two expressions here. Which one are we, are we nosing first? We're going to try the Scottish barley, which is called the Classic Laddie. And this is a fairly new product for us. It is a new product. Uh, the packaging will probably look familiar, that, that great blue bottle that you've seen on the shelf in the past. But the stylistic, it, it is slightly different. Again, no age statement. A uh, 50% alcohol, 100-proof product, and unpeated. So you're really getting a sense of what the grain and what the whiskey makers bring to the table on this one. Yes, I see that the packaging is Scottish barley, whereas most of the Isla distillers are promoting the fact that they are the Isla traditional peated smoke. So we've got a little bit of a wee dram in our glass Mm -hmm. here. It's it's a very pale gold, um, slightly brassy, and, uh, well, this is how it smells. Mm. Fruity and honey and nutty. I think you get the best of the barrel in this. You do get some honey. You get a little bit of that sweet vanilla note. But you're also getting that good earthy smell, from which is good Scottish barley will bring to the table. That is very smooth, but it's also very rich. I can see that um, it's not lacking any character. Even though it doesn't have any peat, it's uh, full-bodied whiskey. I think people will be surprised when they're used to trying an age-stated whiskey. They're expecting a certain profile from that age-stated. This one allows your palate to get past the age-stating and really define what is that whiskey trying to bring to the table. Uh, We're speaking with Brent Young, uh, the brand ambassador for Brook Lottie Single Malt Scotch Whiskey here on Happy Hour Radio, chatting up, actually tasting their Scottish barley expression, which is in the blue bottle. You've also brought one of the more peaty, smoky whiskeys as well, correct? Correct. This is what we're calling our Isla Barley, or it's actually Rockside Farm. This is a very unique uh, whiskey in that the barley comes from 100% from one farm. It also comes from one year. The barley was grown in 2006, and it was distilled in 2007, and then bottled in 2013. Very, very seldom do you get a vint- basically a vintage-stated whiskey. Say that again. You said you've harvested the barley when? Mm-hmm. In 2006. 2006. Distilled in 2007. Mm-hmm. And then put into cask in um, in 2013, or excuse me, put into bottle in 2013. And is the cask, uh, the oak profile program, similar for these two expressions? They are. We use predominantly American white oak bourbon barrels. We like the fact that the allows for a slow maturation of the whiskey. It doesn't mask the whiskey. It really brings the, the great, again, malt barley flavors to the table. But this is really, we're, we're having fun with this one because, like I said, you don't often get, you get your 12-year-olds and 18-year-olds, but you very, very seldom get a vintage-stated whiskey that really tells you what's coming out of the place, a certain specific point in time, and how it's carrying forward in the aging process. Is all the barley produced from one specific region or from one farm, or is it just the Octmore a single barley source? This one comes from the Rockside Farms also. Okay, the Rockside Farms. Two of farms. them that are, that are single source. Very cool. Um, I noticed on the website you had some cool videos for Brook Lottie and from the tasting notes and such. Yes, and the, you can go to brooklottie.com and you can see Jim McEwen is our uh, master distiller, and Jim has a very uh, unique take on the whiskey world. And Jim offers his own insights into the tasting notes on this and a little bit of the production values of, of this as well. And Jim's a uh, an interesting character and, and uh, 
like I said, he, he's bringing a whole new twist to the way that Scotch whiskey is thought of. <laughs> I like that. And this packaging is really unique. It's bright. It's, uh, it's pretty sexy, actually. I'm speaking here with Brent Young, the brand ambassador for Brook Lottie Single Malt Scotch. Um, check him out online, brooklottie.com, B-R-U-I-C-H-L-A-D-D-I-C-H, Brook Lottie. Dot com. Hey, um, we'll be right back. Uh, later on the show, we've got uh, Master of Wine Joel Butler and Director of Winemaking for Desert Wind Winery, uh, Mr. Greg Fries here on Happy Hour Radio. We'll be right back in a minute. Thanks. Looking for fresh marketing ideas? Find them with Christopher Chan and Happy Hour Radio. Just click happyhourradio.net and connect with him today. That's happyhourradio.net. And stay tuned for Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan, right here on 570 KVI. Time for another round. You're listening to Happy Hour Radio, Seattle's most spirited hour of talk with Seattle sommelier Christopher Chan. Hey, and welcome back to Happy Hour. Here with Brent Young, the brand ambassador for Brook Lottie Single Malt Scotch. Uh, Brent's provided two beautiful samples of this uh, great distillery's product. We have the Scottish barley version and then the Isla barley. So, Brent, tell us again how these two whiskeys are similar and yet distinctly different. Uh, the similarities are they're both actually unpeated whiskey, which again is very unique in the, in the Isla world. And the Scottish barley, again, uh, Scottish barley and the Isla barley, actually barley 100% grown on the island. And also with the Isla barley, we comes from a single farm, a uh, single vineyard base, or excuse me, single um, year designate on it, which again is a very, very unique uh, project for us. I know tasting that one, the Isla barley has a much deeper lasting flavor. It's just a very long finish. What do you account for that? Is that oak? I think it's the oak. I think it's also the quality of the barley that comes from one that, that one specific year. And it could be a little bit of the aging profile as well. Again, we don't age state our whiskeys. It might have just a tad more uh, age on it. But um, it really does have that little depth of flavor, much longer finish, I think. Than- yeah, I like I like them both. They're, one's kind of an aperitif, and then one's uh, a sipping after-dinner drink. Very much so. Hey, um, there's a long debate about what's the, quote, best way to serve single malt. Neat, with ice... Water, sparkling water. What's your version? How do you like Brooklotti to be served? In a big glass. <laughs> so, but, well, I think, um, you know, that's very few things bring out um, the passion in people like single malts. And that's one of the reasons I love selling them. People are very, very passionate about how they enjoy their single malts, which ones they enjoy. I think the best way to have a single malt is to first smell it. What is the nose telling you? What is the, the glass coming straight out of the glass telling you? And then uh, perhaps a sip of it. And then, as the many of the Scots do, just add a small teaspoon of water to it. And that will allow the whiskey to bloom and to really open up and give you completely different flavor profiles than the whiskey neat. Younger whiskeys, obviously, are enjoyed with a little bit of, uh, of ice. I think that does allow them to bloom. And, and perhaps older ones are uh, enjoyed best um, on their own. And Neat. Neat and... I like the uh, the way you describe tasting whiskey. I mean, really, when we're enjoying any adult beverage, it's it's you, we use our eyes, nose, mouth, and we we enjoy it. Um, it's about the nose. I mean, aroma is really taste, and you've uh, when you add some water, that releases some of the oils and things, and it really helps balance some of the heat from the uh, these whiskeys. And what are the what proof are these whiskeys? Yeah, balancing the heat is important. These are fifty proof, so they're um, excuse me, fifty percent alcohol. They're hundred proof, so they're they uh, a little bit of water. They can stand up to a little bit of water. Water, water's not going to hurt these guys. You're not diluting <laughs> these with uh, uh, big ice cubes. But I wouldn't. I like the room temperature. And actually, it's in the springtime as it is. Is it spring now? No, no, not yet. Okay, <laughs> it's wintertime. This is a nice warm dram. Hey, so what do these uh, Brooklady expressions run at the liquor store? Well, we have the the starting of the uh, Scottish barley is going to be probably about fifty three, fifty four dollars at your local retailer. The Isla Barley will go up a little bit closer to the 60 mark, and then all the way up to, for the Black Art, all the way up to $299 for 
the real connoisseur and the real collector. We're going to have you back and try that one, I think. We'd love to. Hey, well, I've really enjoyed uh, these great spirits. It's good to, to connect with you again, and uh, congratulations on acquiring a fantastic distillery in Brook Lottie. For all those who want to check out the videos, Insight and Intrigue online, go to brooklottie.com. Brent, thanks for being on Happy Hour. Thank you. Hey, um, next up, uh, I'm really excited to uh, introduce one of my... Uh, one of my mentors here in the world of wine, and we're lucky to have him. Uh, Joel Butler is here. He's a master of wine. We're going to talk about his recent um, co-authorship of a book called Divine Vintage and also dive into what it takes to become a master of wine. Joel, welcome to Happy Hour. Thanks, Chris. Nice to be here. Hey, so um, for our listeners, let's set the stage. Uh, what is a master of wine? <laughs> well, a uh, master of wine is somebody who has... Um, taken a very difficult exam administered by the Institute of Masters of Wine in London, started there about 60 years ago as a way to improve the professionalism of people in the wine trade back in the days after World War II and going forward. It is now a global institution. We have 314 members around the world, most still in the UK, but there's quite a number here in North America as well. And being a member means you've passed the Master of Wine exam and you're now an MW. You pass the exam, you sign a, conduct, a code of conduct, and yes, at that point you are a master of wine. Ah, very cool. And what are the examination processes? Is it a uh, written test, an oral exam, or what do you have to break down to become to, to pass? The, the exam is over five days. It's a completely written exam, uh, somewhat different in that respect from the Master Sommelier program. Uh, everything is written. There's a whole set of... Um, exams on different subjects from viticulture to commercial interests that you are writing in essay form. The tastings are done uh, three days of blind tastings with 12 wines uh, where you have to write all your answers out, uh, analyzing the wines that are put forward. So tell us what and, a blind tasting is for everybody who doesn't know. You close uh, your eyes and taste? Is that how it works? <laughs> in this case, you might as well because <laughs> it's all double blind. As we said, There's no, you have no idea what you're looking at except you have to parse it out through what you taste. What you sight, smell, taste. Sight, and, smell, uh -huh. analytical, deduction, and so on. And once you pass those two parts of the exam, there's a third part that comes later, which is a research paper that is on an original subject about wine in some fashion. And uh, once you pass that, then you um, are a master of wine. And when did you pass? I was one of the first two Americans to pass as resident American back in 1990. 1990? Friend of, yep. Friend of mine, Tim Hanai, and me. Very cool. And what was your research paper on? We didn't have to do them then. Uh, that's a development in the exam format that came about... Uh, few years later, um, so it was an added part we thought was important. I like it. And uh, so when you talk about a research paper, you're talking about, what, how yeast interact with uh, a certain type of sugar or... If that's your interest, um, <laughs> you can do that. Uh, and it has to be on an original subject uh, and vetted, you know, by our education team. Um, but it could be a study of the importance of the uh, development of uh, Fino Sherry's on the, you know, UK market for wine. You know, it could be any number of things. So it includes economics, the wine yes. business, and the whole world of wine and all of its different merits and capacities. Absolutely. And that's what the exam is about. It's a very holistic exam. It's not just specifically, you know, about your tasting. It's not just about um, service. It's everything in the world of wine. And uh, at what age did you find your calling in the world of wine? I started working in wine more or less the year after I got out of college. I went back to Europe and did some research for a group that my father and my uncle were involved with. What kind of research was that? Tasting a lot. <laughs> but also listening to talking to people in the business back then. This was 1972 when I did this and spent seven months in the vineyards. France, and Germany, France, Spain? France, Germany, Spain, All over, Italy, huh? um, even went to Morocco, although that wasn't for wine, I can tell you that, quite honestly. I other <laughs> things in mind on that one. Some spices, I imagine. Yes, definitely some spices. Um, but yeah, it was an important time. You know, did the harvest in Burgundy, got a chance to talk with some of the great legendary producers of wine in Germany, uh, spent time in Bordeaux, and really got to understand from the ground up, from people who were very much involved in the wine business as well as production, 
just what it took to make great wine, and that's formed my sensibilities ever since. Very cool. And you said there's 317? I think we're 314. 314. 314. And we have some candidates in Washington currently uh, applying themselves for the Master of Wine? We do indeed, yeah, including a couple of winemakers. If someone wanted to follow this path, what would they do to get involved or engaged in sort of the curriculum? Well, the every year, usually around August, there's an application that goes out to people who are interested. And uh, by filling out the application, there's some aspects to that. You have to write an essay. You have to provide some uh, anecdotal tasting notes based upon some questions that are asked of you. You need to find support from a master of wine and somebody in the trade who thinks you're capable of doing it. Huh. At which point the application goes in. And then if you're accepted, we do a yearly study course. You have to be on the study course for at least two years, which is takes a, it's a week-long course. And it's more to bring people more up to speed, remind them of you know approaches to taking the exam. It's not to try to teach you much about wine per se, because we automatically assume that you're pretty ex- expert in that when you come on course. Otherwise, you wouldn't be asked to. Interesting. So it's an application process at first, but there's is there any prerequisite outside? Is there? A, I know that the Wine and Spirits edu- Educational Trust has been thought of as the uh, academic uh, entree into the Master of Wine. Yeah, it's 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 not because we're not really an academic degree. You know, this is a trade certification, so it's a professional thing. So there's no real academic prerequisite. It does help if you've passed the WSET diploma level, which is fairly high level, just because you're more accustomed to the kinds of questions and the kind of thinking uh, to do it, but you don't have to. And there's a lot of people in America, for example, who've never done WSET. Interesting. We're yeah. we're speaking with Master of Wine, Joel Butler, here on Happy Hour Radio. And uh, just learning a little bit about the Master of Wine examination and process. And um, so what kind of activities do you do as a Master of Wine? Well, in, in that role, I mean, I'm on the board, so it's kind of like the board of directors council. So I'm involved with the overall direction of the institute, but I'm on the board here in the United States as well, in North America. But we organize exa- uh, tastings. We obviously set up uh, every year a few different kinds of uh, tasting sessions, master classes. We do classes that are for people who might be interested in taking uh, the program, getting on it. Because I usually tell people, look, if you really want to take the time, money, trouble, you want to be really committed to doing this, to becoming a master of wine is is a lot of work like anything else that you want to develop your expertise with. And therefore, you got to think at least three to five years is going to be necessary to do so. Well, I better start on that path. And you have a website <laughs> that can help people uh, align themselves with some of the uh, activities you just mentioned. Yes, the www.mastersofwine.org. <laughs> That's pretty easy, mastersofwine.org. And uh, you also have a company locally called Wino. Wino, that's right, W-I-N-E-K-N-O-W. And we teach classes. We do WSET classes. We do consulting uh, to various entities in the wine business. So we do a lot of both things. Well, I, I think it's time for me to jump on that path as well. And um, as I as I work towards uh, studying everything in the world of wine for my Master Sommelier uh, exam next year. <laughs> I think it'd be good to get on the Master of Wine path, too, to to really you know nail down everything there is to know about wine. It won't hurt. I will say we have a number of Master Sommelier students and or including some Master Sommeliers who've gone on to become Masters of Wine. That's right. We've got Doug Frost, who's a Master Sommelier and a Master right. of Wine, and... Eric Hemer. Eric Hemer passed in Florida. Uh, yes, just last year. Yeah. yeah. And those are the only two? The only two here in the U.S. Oh, There's cool. a couple of living in Europe who were both master sommeliers yeah. and masters of wine. Those guys are studs. And it's such it's so fun to learn more about uh, the Master of Wine examination and what it takes. Hey, we're going to jump into, uh, we're going to talk about divine vintage and following the wine trail from Genesis and the Modern Age, a book that Joel Butler has co-authored with Randall Heskett. Uh, when we come back on Happy Hour Radio. Um, coming up in the show, we're going to spend some time with uh, my friend Greg Fries, who is the president, co-owner, and director of winemaking for Desert Wind Winery, here on Happy Hour Radio. Happy Hour Radio. 
Looking for fresh marketing ideas? Find them with Christopher Chan and Happy Hour Radio. Just click happyhourradio.net and connect with him today. That's happyhourradio.net. And stay tuned for Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan, right here on 570 KBI. The glass is always half full. You're listening to Happy Hour Radio with the Commodore of Cocktails, Christopher Chan. Hey, and welcome back to Happy Hour Radio right here on 570 KBI. I was really excited to taste some wonderful scotch whiskey um, from Brook Lottie Distillery with my friend Brent Young earlier. But right now I'm speaking with um, one of my mentors and a guy I admire in the wine biz, Joel Butler, Master of Wine. Joel, tell us about this recent book you've co-authored. Sure. Uh, It's called Divine Vintage, Following the Wine Trail from Genesis to the Modern Age. I wrote it with a friend of mine who's a biblical scholar. Um, The book is not a religious book. It's really about parsing the language of the biblical texts about wine and putting it into the historical um, perspective of what people drank back then, uh, how they made it, what were some of the best wines— but it was also about um, trying to attempt to characterize um, the fact that wine is sort of a metaphorical uh, statement for the spread of human civilization. That as we spread culture um, westwards from the first settlements um, in the Middle East, that's where the grape came from, too, and where it was domesticated. So the domestication of the grape also tracks very nicely with the evolution and uh, movement of uh, different kinds of human culture as uh, the grape spread south into what we now call Israel and Lebanon and all that, and then down to Egypt and westwards to Greece and Italy and all that. So what we were looking at is that it's a combination of the divine in the sense of wine being a part of the connectedness to the spiritual that people used it for, because it was, certainly, but also because it was such an important beverage daily for people's <laughs> survival, uh, and because it was clean, and uh, it was used to to purify water, so to speak. But it also uh, was um, the purpose of wine had that dual edge, that it was um, literally from the vine, uh, if you think just divino in Italian, if you want to say it that way, which is the word for divine, but also um, that connective to some sort of a, a spiritual level. So what we did is we looked at it historically, um, how the text of the Bible interprets the importance of wine from the initial Hebrew point of view and how it evolved into something greater and how it echoes uh, a lot of the things we've now found archaeologically and culturally through the spread of civilization. I get it. So the word divine, I mean, who, who did you know that divine actually was part of the word vine? Greg? It's not. No, I, I shouldn't say that. It, it, does, it doesn't really. We just use the play on words because it's from the Latin, you know, the word itself. And what does Latin vine or vitus mean? Or vitus? Vitus, venom is, you know, the species, vitus. But we just, we were having a fun play on words with divine if you take it from the... You know, Italian language. It goes deeper than that, I, I think so. And it's definitely, uh, I'm a spiritual guy, and, and wine definitely plays a role in um, my spirituality. Um, it lifts the spirit, that's for sure. So wine became before beer? Um, it's difficult to say, but in terms of, it's certainly an easier thing to do. Wine is will happen naturally. All that happens to have grapes is fermented grace juice to ferment. Sugar, that, that's water. just something. Beer is something that has to be done consciously. That took, quote, a culture, a point perspective. It takes doing some certain things. It certainly takes a lot of water to do it. Um, it's a different approach. And so what we did is through the book, the first part of the book was all about the historical aspects of all this, looking at it from the cultural and and, and uh, textual aspects. The second half of the book is taking the whole, if you will, the Bible wine trail, the area of the holy air, the, everything, everywhere that was spoken about in the biblical text, the lands, and looking at today's wines being made again in these areas, in many cases from really old indigenous varieties like the one I just you know poured for you. That's uh, pretty cool because in Washington we, we have some old vines, but we're talking really old vines and actually the birthplace of wine in the Middle East. Yep, in Anatolia, the Caucasus. So there's a lot of really ancient vineyard vines, that is old varieties that they still have indigenous to their areas and which we've now looked at DNA and we're 
still parsing through all that, but there's a lot of studies trying to connect the dots between these ancient varieties that are still found in Turkey or in Georgia or Armenia with the more modern European varieties such as Cabernet. Is that the birthplace of wine in those in, in Georgia? Yep. Well, actually more today, a lot of the researchers, people I talked with, you know, friends of mine who were involved with the research, like Patrick McGovern or Jose Villamos, the grape geneticist, they're looking more and more and thinking that southeast Anatolia, which is closer to, well, southeast Turkey today, and going east towards the Armenian border, Mount Ararat, are in fact the foundation areas for the domestication of the grape variety, Venus vinifera. Interesting. I'm here so speaking with uh, that's what, Joel. This is what we're looking at here. Here with Joel Butler, Master of Wine, uh, speaking about his book, Divine Vintage. So the question really everybody wants to know is, what did Jesus drink? <laughs> well, we actually did that. We played that game. I was able to find a number of wines um, using uh, that are made today using ancient techniques still including a few that were made in the model of a Roman wine of the era of when Jesus was alive at a winery in France uh, where they still do this kind of thing. They've recreated a Roman vineyard and Roman winery with Roman press and all that and flavoring the wines in the way they used to do it with seawater or various herbs and spices and are pretty good. But we also looked at wines like the Georgian wines, which are fermented and aged in amphora, which is, again, a very old a big practice. clay Clay jug. Clay jugs. And also some ancient styles, you know, making wine from raisins, like the Vin Santo of, our, of uh, the island of Santorini in Greece. Santorini, yeah. Where you're, you're uh, laying grapes out to dry in the sun and then aging them in, in old oak barrels. So we looked at all that. And um, if you look at it that way... Um, these would be all styles of wine that Jesus or somebody from that era would be familiar with. And those are mostly white then? They were white and red. The okay. red were done too. Um, but a lot of white wine was made back then. We we don't understand that uh, until more recently. That that was not something that people thought. It would, most people thought most wine was red. But there was quite a lot of white wine made. And so that was part of the fun of this book was to look at things historically and then compare that with what's now being made in these countries. Who's making great wine whether they're making them from indigenous varieties like this wine from Turkey that I brought or whether they're making them from Cabernet, say, in Israel. And looking and seeing what these countries that for so many years nobody's really thought about as making fine wine, um, which again are now crafting some really exciting wines and with unique places and, and mostly in places that were famous 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years ago. That is very interesting. I, I've uh, been reading the book, and it is um, quite a journey, a path all around the world. To, well, that the was old the idea. World. Um, very to follow the, the grapevine. And I see you did bring a red wine from Turkey. So what grape variety is this? So this is a variety um, called Kalajik Karazi. literally means the black grape of Kalajik. And Kalajik is a town about 60 miles northeast of Ankara, the capital, in Anatolia. And um, it's in a beautiful Red River Valley, high altitude, about 2,000, 2,200 feet. And actually, that whole part of Turkey, where Anatolia is, and where a lot of wine comes from, is looks a lot like eastern Washington. The climate's similar. It's cold winters, continental climate, hot summers. And this is a variety that I was really just totally taken when, when I first had it there in Turkey four years ago when I started research on the book because it combined elements of Pinot Noir, uh, the great grape of the Mount Etna area, Narello, because it has this light color but very intense, spicy, almost peppery perfume. But it also has certain tannins like the Nebbiolo of northern Italy. And you put all that together... And it's Kalajik Karazi. And um, it's, a, it's a delicate wine, but it has really intense pungency, but suppleness. Um, Pinot Noir-like, but a little earthier. And this is version from the winery called Vincara, which is one of the best producers in the area. It's now being imported in the U.S. finally. It took them a couple of years. But uh, this is their regular wine. They make a reserve that has more aging and oak and all that. But I like the purity of this because it's, combination of delicacy and intensity that is unique. And, you know, when you're so used to wines like Cabernet and those bigger, bolder styles, here's something that people actually are making in an area that has its own uniqueness. It's been around for centuries. We don't know how far back, you know, Kalajik goes, but it's certainly several hundred years. 
Uh, it's whether, a delicious wine. Uh, it's, exactly. It reminded me very much of uh, an Italian, northern Italian wine, yeah. in that Barbera, Dolcetto yeah. uh, uh, realm of, of flavors. Um, very cool. I'm glad you brought that. Kalicek Karasi. Kalicek Karasi. Kalicek Karasi. Yeah. I'm learning yeah. Turkish already. Yeah. This is yeah. fun. Well, Joe Butler, Master of Wine, um, we can find your book at Amazon, I take it? You can find it at Amazon. You can find it at uh, Elliott Bay Books. You can find it, uh, hopefully, in other bookstores, Nook, uh, as well. So, yeah. Well, uh, I invite or on my website. On your website, yes, which is? Yes, I'll send you a signed copy. It's www.mywino.com. Mywino.com. Here yep. with Joe Butler, Master Wine. Thanks for being on Happy Hour. My pleasure. I've enjoyed that. Uh, Turkish wine. Very cool. Well, I'm excited to welcome uh, President and Co-Owner and Director of Winemaking, Mr. Greg Fries of Desert Wind Winery. Greg, welcome to Happy Hour. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me. Um, so you've got a lot of titles. Yeah, well, it could uh, you could add a few more under there, like landscaper, forklift repairman. It's when it's a family business, uh, you know, you cover a lot of ground. So. Mayor went, wear many hats. Yeah. Um, tell us, when did you get the wine bug? Are you a farmer by trade, or did you jump into wine? Um, you have to go back to uh, early '90s. I was going to school down at UC Davis, kind of searching for what I wanted to do. And uh, I kind of fell across the uh, the winemaking program down there at UC Davis. Started taking some classes and stumbled across. Well, well, you know, everyone takes Vin One Hundred One uh, when they at Davis at some point, just so they can do the wine tasting. And so that's kind of how I got into it and um, started taking more classes and really uh, kind of developed a passion for winemaking down there. And I was lucky enough to have a uh, a family that had a hazelnut farm in the Willamette Valley in, in, in Oregon. So Your family? My family did. So it um, kind of worked out to where I got to study winemaking and learn how to uh, make wine. And then when I got out of school, I got to uh, participate or, or form a family business with my folks. And that was the wine business at that point? That was the wine. And what well, year was that? That was 1993-94 when I got out of school. Wow. 20 years. Yeah. It's, it's been a while and it's, it's, it's been a fun ride. <laughs> I like it. And they say that hazelnut uh, orchards were great places to grow Chardonnay. Is that true? It could be. We actually had a little bit of Chardonnay planted uh, on, on that farm that made a real nice Oregon Chardonnay. Oh, love it. Uh, speaking with Greg Fries of Desert Wind Winery, um, you want to check it out online. They've got lots of cool uh, activities at their winery. It's desertwindwinery.com. Pretty simple. Um, and I see you brought uh, three or four different wines. Um I see you've got a white. Which is that? I brought uh, the Viognier. That's from the Desert Wind Vineyard up in uh, the Wallach Slope of Washington. That is, uh, it, it's a great white wine. For those who don't know Viognier, it's a real aromatic white wine that uh, doesn't require barrel aging or, or extended aging to enjoy. It's just open it up, and it's a, a tropical notes. Um, it's often actually used in red wine to give red wine more aromatics. The, you know, it's a little secret winemakers have. So it's, it's a real nice wine. Um, I love it. We're speaking with Greg Fries of Desert Wind Winery. And we're going to try that uh, Viognier here in a second. But I see you poured some red wine. Which red wine did you pour? I brought the uh, the Rua. That's our Bordeaux blend from Desert Wind. Ruha! Yeah, yeah. Well, that's part of the fun of the name is just uh, being able to say it however, however you choose to. Rua, yeah. It's, it's an ancient word for... Uh, for wind, which kind of fit in with the theme of the winery. Ah, uh, I get it. So we're going to come back after this break and chat about how the winery got started, um, where it's at, and uh, we're going to take a sip of this Ruha coming up on Happy Hour Radio. Looking for fresh marketing ideas? Find them with Christopher Chan and Happy Hour Radio. Just click happyhourradio.net and connect with him today. That's happyhourradio.net. And stay tuned for Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan, right here on 570 KVI. Grab a stool. You're listening to Seattle's most spirited hour of talk, Happy Hour Radio, with master mixologist Christopher Chan. And welcome back to Happy Hour. It's been a really fun show today. Thanks to my friend Brent Young of Brook Lottie Distillery, brooklottie.com, and Master of Wine, Joel Butler, with his great book, Divine Vintage. And uh, 
You can find that at Amazon.com or his website, mywino.com. Right now, we're speaking with Greg Fries, president, co-owner, and director of winemaking for Desert Wind Winery. Um, Greg, I've noticed this beautiful building on I-82 heading past Yakima to Prosser, and it's got this big word called named Desert Wind. Tell us about that. Uh, Desert Wind started out as um, you know, my family and I sitting down and saying, what kind of place would we want to provide to all of our, our customers to give them the experience that, that we would want to have? And so we came up with uh, with the facility that we came up with, and that that is a, a tasting room. It has a restaurant inside of it. It has overnight rooms inside of it. Um, it's where people can come and get a complete wine country experience, and uh, that that's why we put that facility there in Prosser. It's got everything, a tasting room, a restaurant, and overnight rooms. Yeah. It's a one-stop shop. Yeah, so you don't have to go very far. Once uh, once you come into town, we can take care of you the whole time. And it's really pretty close to Seattle. It's not far. It's two hours away? Yeah, it'd probably be two, two and a half hours away, probably, to Prosser. And it's, you know, it's a nice, easy drive over the past, depending on what kind of time of year, I suppose. But yeah. Um, it, 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 and Prosser is a great place to go and, and stay and do some wine tasting in the area as well. And we can find, you can reserve an overnight room on your website? Yeah, you can go to the website and get information on all the rooms. There's four overnight rooms, so uh, they do book out quite a bit on the weekends, and but it has um, nice pictures and all the details about the rooms on the website. And that's at DesertWindWinery.com. Yeah, DesertWindWinery.com. And tell me about the restaurant. What style of, uh, is this kind of, a, I want to say California country, but what is it? Well, actually, that, that's a good question. The, the whole building uh, that we put there is kind of a southwest style. And that's when you when you drive by the building, you'll see it has a southwest look to it. Uh, once you get inside the winery, the, that, that same theme carries through. And to the restaurant as well, the restaurant's called Mojave at Desert Wind. And uh, the, the, our chef there, is, uh, she's really great. Her name's Kristen Johnson, and she's, she's been with us, us for several years now. Um, but you'll, So the food will have a little bit of northwest, you know, slash southwest flair to it, you know, so, some salmon, some uh, quesadilla-type stuff. So it's, it, it's really good. She gets a lot of great reviews. Well, it sounds delicious. I love uh, that achiote rubbed salmon, and uh, quesadillas are one of my favorite <laughs> as a bachelor food. I grew up on quesadillas, and um, the name of the restaurant's Mojave. 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 Yeah. They serve breakfast too. So, if you're overnight room, you've got some food in the morning. Well, actually, yeah. If you if you stay overnight with us, a, a, a breakfast is delivered to your room. That's part of the package. And Sold. So, yeah, yeah. It's really great. The customers really love it. Oh, so we'll find your overnight room, your wine pairings, your restaurant meal, all in one at DesertWindWinery.com. I I want to check that out. Yeah, and four rooms though, huh? So it's a you got to race to get them. Yeah, uh, uh, during the summertime, it's it's a very busy time of year for us, and you know, during the off season, you'll you'll be able to come over there and, and maybe stay a little cheaper and have um, more more options as far as the dates. Well, I heard that Prosser is the Palm Springs of Washington. Well, uh, that uh, might be Yakima, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Prosser's uh, you know something like that. It's always nice weather over there. Um, well, I love the fact that you can have everything there. And how many wines do you are you producing at Desert Wind Winery? Wow. Well, we have three core wines that you'll find, you know, in, in all the stores in Seattle and, and throughout Washington State. Um, and then we we have probably a good seven or eight other wines that if you come to our tasting room, you can, you know, kind of exclusively try those over there. So A couple blends or mostly single varietal? Um, the the Ruah that we're going to taste here in a second, that's kind of our... our our big red blend. That's our only blend that we do. And then the other ones would be like Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot. Those are the other ones that are kind of you'll find in the in the grocery stores around town. We do a lot of uh, single varietals that you don't see very often. We do a Cabernet Franc. Uh, we do a Barbera. Uh, we, of course, we do Syrah. All those grapes do really well uh, at our vineyard site. What about Karasi? Karasi, no, uh, we're talking about planning some of that, but uh, you know, not there yet. <laughs> I love it. So, um, DesertWindWinery.com, you can get an overnight room. You can check out great food at Mojave Restaurant and uh, taste a variety of wines. And we're going to jump into this one blend. It's the 2011 vintage of Ruah, which is from the Waluk Slope. Tell us about that American viticultural area. Waluk Slope. It's uh, about 50 miles east of Yakima. It's um. 
it's on a mountain range called the Saddle Mountains, and it, it faces a, a south slope off of those uh, Saddle Mountains. It's it's a Region 3, which is known for being about the hottest area in the state of Washington. I mean, there, there's other Region 3s, but Wallach Slope is known for being one of the warmest uh, areas in the state of Washington. So that, that allows the reds to get nice and ripe there on a consistent basis, and we're usually one of the first sites to start harvesting in the year. So. And when you say regions, there's five regions in, in wine-growing areas that we talk about heat differentiation. Yeah, exactly. Ranges. Yeah. So like if you were down in the Central Valley of California, you'd be more like in a, in a region five. <laughs> and, uh, I don't The Region one would be a very cool region. So Washington is a great region. Uh, re- region three is real popular for the, the Bordeaux that we grow up here. Well, tell us which grape varieties you have in the 2011 Ruah. The Ruah is uh, it's 45% Cabernet Sauvignon, 38% Merlot, and 17% Cabernet Franc. And that's kind of... Uh, pretty consistent. I mean, it doesn't always make those exact numbers year in, year out, but it's usually kind of equal amounts, Merlot and Cabernet Sauvignon. And then we have about 20% Cab Franc usually to uh, provide some aromatics and some other components to it. It's a lovely wine. I just uh, had a sip of this um, deep, dark, ruby red color. You know, for 2011, it shows beautiful finesse. I was surprised. I I was worried that 11 was really cold in Washington for the most part, and we were going to have very somewhat green wines, but this is ripe. Right. This has got great acidity, and the tannin is well managed. Do you do punch downs or pump overs? We do actually a bit of both. Uh-huh. Uh, we, we've started doing more and more punch downs at the winery, just a, kind of a way to start developing them. Um, more premium small lot wines that we can provide to people, but we we do a blend of, of pump overs, punch downs, and that's the realize that's what we like to put our our finest wine into, uh, so people can consistently get a, a wine that they can count on when they go and pick it up. It really is a fine wine, and you've been in business for twenty years now. Yeah, yeah, I've been in business for a while. The tasting room uh, at Desert Wind opened in two thousand seven, so it's it's you know got a half dozen years under its belt now. But as, as far as uh, um, producing wines, it's it's been a family business for quite a while now. I'm really glad you're you're on Happy Hour Radio today because um, it's easy for us as wine people to get comfortable with seeing brands over and over that we kind of um, lose sight of the opportunities to enjoy them. And this Desert Wind Ruah 2011, this is a beautiful wine. This has got elegance, um, good structure, but the tannin is so supple, and the finish is long. I can still taste this. This is fantastic. Do you like 10 or 11 better? Uh, I, I like the 11 is, is starting to drink really nice. I mean, the, the 10 is a nice wine as well, but the 11 starting to drink those now. Like you say, the they just linger for a long time on the palate, and, and uh, it's very nice wine. We're speaking with Greg Fries, Director of Winemaking. I'm going to use that title right now because I'm really <laughs> impressed with this Desert Wind Ruha 2011. Um, what did the bottle like this run? This would be uh, kind of at the upper end. It would be $20 a bottle. You're kidding. Yeah. No, it's a good value wine. Uh, what I do like to remind listeners and my friends and, and when I do wine classes, I always say that a company that's been in business for a long time is pretty much taking care of their overheads. They're able to offer much better values than the brand new winery sometimes because th- that guy's got to make all his money back in the first few years. And so that's why his wine's 35 bucks. This is a, an amazing wine. How much? What's your production of the Ruah? The Ruah is, is about 8,000 cases that that we've been selling throughout the years. Uh, that is, like you touched on it, one of the main things that we focus on at Desert Wind is that the fact that we're uh, kind of a fully integrated from start to finish, plant the grapes ourselves. It's all estate-grown fruit. We own our own vineyards, make our own wine, and, and you know, that's that's kind of special to us as, as far as how we like to do our, our job at Desert Wind. I love it. I have to t- say a little secret. When I was here at the studio today, um, I was really expecting uh, a much older gentleman than you, Greg. And when the front desk said I had a guest, I said, who is that? <laughs> yeah. You are a young guy. Uh, yeah, but uh, there'll be gray hairs here pretty soon, I'm sure. <laughs> well, you still, you'll, at least you'll have them. Um, so tell us about the Viognier again. Are you planting that in the Waluk Slope as well? That's up at the on the Waluk Slope as well. It's a, we have um, about 480 acres up on the Waluk Slope, and that's we have two vineyard sites up there. Um, but that's where all of our fruit come from. So the Viognier we have uh, we make 500 cases of that wine. So it's uh, it's one you can find here in the state of Washington and at the tasting room or ordered online. But that's actually a 90 point wine in the Wine Spectator. So it's been a very popular wine for us. I love it. And so it's no oak. 
texture no, on that? that? That one has no oak to it at I all. I like it. When you said earlier, Viognier doesn't need any oak, you're still California that, because they're always <laughs> over-extracting the oak down there. Um, and Viognier is a very floral and aromatic grape. And Which is your favorite wine that you produce? Are you producing all the wines, or do you have a couple assistants? Oh, we have a great winemaker. His name's Mark Chargan. He's, he started out as my assistant, uh, I think, in 2005. And so he's he's worked his way to where you know he can definitely take the responsibility, and so that gives me a little bit more time to uh, to help with get the harvest in, get the the vineyard work done, and and also whatever else is needed done in the fix family the business. forklift, so, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. Well, we're speaking yeah. with Greg Fries, director of winemaking, president, co-owner, forklift fixer of Desert Wind Winery, and uh, touched upon the great overnight rooms, the fabulous restaurant, uh, and uh, the tasting room at their property off uh, I-82 in Prosser called Desert Wind Winery. They do it all there. So you can have a beautiful overnight room, a great meal, and sip some amazing wines. I'm really impressed with this Desert Wind Ruah. This is this is great. It's really a great wine for Washington. You've done, gosh, I want everyone to try it. Here, I'm going to pour some into the mic, everybody. <laughs> um, looking ahead, who's taken over? I say you had a newborn son. Yeah, uh, that's Elliot. He's almost two years old now, so he's he's been a handful, but uh, he's 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 been a great joy to have around and. I just got to kind of maybe cut some of the, the harvest nights a little bit shorter to get home and help my wife out a little bit more yeah, now. Yeah, it's family man time. Well, um, congratulations on, on, wow, 20 years goes quick, doesn't it? It does, but I'm really looking forward to the next 20, to be honest. There's a lot of exciting things happening. Good for you. I'm really pleased that you're here today. DesertWindWinery.com uh, is for all you need to know about the overnight rooms in Prosser. Really check it out. It sounds like a fabulous evening. And um, Greg Freeze, thanks for being on Happy Hour Radio. Thanks a lot for having me. Um, coming up on next week's show, uh, hey, it's Washington Wine Month, and we're going to, well, we're drinking Desert Wind Ruha today, so that makes it, it is March, and that is Washington mm-hmm. Wine Month. That's a fantastic wine. Um, we're going to have a chat with uh, Andrew Will, winery founder, and winemaker Chris Camarda. We'll also introduce a boutique and world-class Vashon Island Coffee Company and the woman behind Pollard Coffee Company, Robin Pollard. Um We'll also learn how to speak Spanish wine with Classical Wines of Spain owner Steve Metzler. Hey, I hope you had a great time today on Happy Hour Radio. Remember, if you have a question, email us at ask at happyhourradio.net. I want to once again thank my great panel of people here today, my guests, uh, Brent Young of brooklatic.com, brooklatic.com, the great Isla Island Distillery in Scotland. Master of Wine, Joel Butler, and his fantastic book, Divine Vintage, and uh, that Turkish wine. Say it again, Joel. Kaleji Karazi. <laughs> Kaleji Karazi. All right. That's going to be our new toast. And Greg Fries, uh, president, owner, father, wine guy, uh, extraordinaire for Desert Wind Winery. Um, look forward to seeing you. Remember, uh, life is always better with a designated driver. Be safe. I'll see you next week on Happy Hour Radio.